Thank you, Chuck. Good morning again. Uh, it's a privilege to be up here to sit under God's word with you and to lead you in this. And uh, I do ask that you would open your Bibles. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take the Bible in front of you out in your pew and open it to page 998 and 99. Titus, the book of Titus that we started talking about last week. We open the Bible each week because we want to sit under God's life-changing, powerful words. And that's why we do what we do, so that we pray and hope that God will change us and transform us. And we know that my, I certainly know my words won't do that, but God's powerful words will do that. So as we open, let us go to God and ask for his help. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you as our Heavenly Father that you allow us to come together this morning as your people, beloved and cherished because of the finished and complete work of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for being our great heavenly father that speaks to us through your word and spirit this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you've promised to be with us always until the end of the age. And as we've gathered together as your precious gem, your church, we pray, Lord, that we will be transformed into the likeness of your son this morning. Change us, Lord. Lord, we know that all the recollections of our best intentions in 2015, certainly we know how far short we fall of our own standards, yet alone of your great standard. So we need your help. We need your powerful spirit to change us. Please do so. Grant us clarity, Lord. Grant us focus and keep distractions at bay these next few moments. Give me clarity, Lord, and faithfulness to your word. And let us all, Lord, seek to respond in repentance and faith, Lord, as we hear your great word. Thank you, Lord, for speaking. In your son's name we pray this. Amen. Titus chapter 3. We'll be looking at Titus chapter 3, the first five verses. And let me go ahead and read this up the front. Titus chapter 3, and we'll just stop at verse 5. Titus 3.1. Remind, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration in renewal of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. This is his written word. Well, I want to introduce to you this morning the island of Crete. Quite a nice place, isn't it? It's the Silver Island, a Mediterranean paradise. And even someone like myself who loves snow-capped mountains and crisp mountain streams, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that it'd be quite a nice place to be this morning. Even in the mildest winter that we've been having so far, we'd have to admit just looking at a photo like this warms us, makes us feel good, doesn't it? Well, most of us aren't familiar with the island of Crete, where we live in the Western Hemisphere, and it's over in the Mediterranean Sea. But if we did know it better, it certainly would make any top 10 list of the ideal place to relocate if you just had a little bit more money. But, of course, there is a problem. Actually, there are two problems. The first is that 
Crete is part of Greece, and as such, your money's not going to go very far these days. And second, uh, despite what I showed you, despite what you saw, it is a bear of a place to live in. The government is an oppressive regime, especially against Christians. The surrounding culture and the surrounding society is riddled with strife and contempt and licentiousness. The culture at large is given to decadence and a faux moralism. It's a progressive culture, posing to be multicultural and inviting, but one that's moving faster and faster towards a dangerous and sensorial monolith. But, you know, what we could say is certainly if I move there, I can find an outpost of like-minded Christians that I could huddle together with at a good evangelical church where we could keep the cultural problems at bay and just keep together. A church that differentiates itself from the rest of the culture. Well, that's not likely either. You see, the church in Crete is burdened with similar problems. The church has all types of disagreements, greed, Anger, malice run amok, and there's false teaching everywhere. Does this description sound familiar? Despite the aesthetics, living in Crete is actually not much different than living in America, is it? And living in 21st America, 21st century America, is really not much different than living in 1st century Crete. For the picture I just painted to you of this tropical island is a picture that comes from the book of Titus. As Paul wrote to his young pastoral trainee 2,000 years ago. We know about the church and the culture of Crete from Titus. We know about it from historical context. And the question would be is, how do we respond to living in such an environment, to being in such a context as Titus is, as we are? Well, I want to use a modern word to, to summarize what Paul's teaching for us this morning is. And that modern word is tolerance. That should be our response to living in such a culture, such a climate. Tolerance. Now, in order for us to see why and why Paul would say such a thing, how Paul would say such a thing, what exactly is it that Paul is saying to Titus to tell to his people and thus to us? We need to take a step back and understand what Nathan began to tell us last week about the book of Titus. In summary, or in short, the book of Titus is about the path to godliness, about doing good works that accord with the beliefs you have about God, about his world, and about you as his workmanship, doing good works that accord with the salvation you profess. These good works, this idea of good works is all over the book. Look with me really quickly. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul's writing to a group of people about their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. Drop down to verse 16 of chapter 1, and the opposite is why he's writing. The opposite problem is existing, that people think they know God, that they deny him by their not-so-good works. Chapter 2, verse 10, as Paul writes about how workers and bondservants are to respond to their masters, he's saying that, they need to show all good faith, all good belief, so that in everything they may adorn the gospel, adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us so that we would be a people zealous for good works. 
chapter 3, verse 8, the trustworthy saying Paul exhorts Titus with, he says, insist on these things so that those who believed, those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So here's the question for us this morning. How do we foster those good works? What are those good works? I mean, anytime we take a big picture understanding of the Bible, we need to apply it to understand it, to give examples. Well, thankfully, and fortunately for us, Paul does that very thing for us in the first few verses here in Titus chapter 3. He gives us a really practical, down-to-earth application of how sound doctrine leads to sound and right living. How right belief leads to good works. In other words, Paul is saying right belief leads to right and God-honoring behavior. Wrong belief leads to God-denying behavior. All our actions are a product of what we believe. So Paul wants Titus to double down on this faithful gospel message that he was taught and teach it to all people so that it may produce fruit, good works, a people zealous and trained to do the good works as Titus instructs them. Of all the curriculum I teach over the years, there are a few times things really stick out to me that plant themselves in my memory. One of those things last year came in the Gospel Project, and there was a sentence that I use all the time because it really resonates with me. It says, all behavior problems come from a belief problem. That's really the message of Titus. All our behavioral problems, all the problems in Crete and the church and in the culture come from a belief problem. And so our job this morning is to say, okay, what are these good works we need to devote ourselves to? And what are the bad works we're supposed to avoid? And how are they driven? How are they fostered? Paul gives us a very specific example of how right belief leads to godly living. And here in chapter 3, he actually does it in reverse His reminder there in verse 1 of chapter 3 is a reminder of the good works they're supposed to devote themselves to. I'm sorry, in verse 1, verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 5, he makes sure they understand the basis, the motivation, the driving force behind these good works in verses 1 and 2. So really, if if you're on your outline in the back of the compass there, if you want to just a quick outline that you can draw for yourself to remember some points, it's really two points. Verses 1 and 2 are all about tolerance, and verses 3 through 5 are all about humility. Okay? So let's start with this idea that I threw out there earlier, tolerance, verses 1, 2, and then into 3. Tolerance is the good works that the book of Titus is driving us to. And he gets very specific here. Right? Look down there again. Remind them to be submissive, be obedient, ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people tolerance. It's actually pretty interesting that this concept, the idea of tolerance is how the whole book of Titus unfolds. In the the first two chapters, Paul says to Titus, be absolutely intolerant of false teaching and false teachers in the church. Silence them, rebuke them, stop them, because according to chapter 1 verse 11, they are ruining whole families. They are ruining the church. Paul knows that false teaching, wrong belief, will lead to wrong behavior. It will ruin the church inside and out. 
And people will then not be given to their lives to adorn the gospel of God, but their lives will mar the great gospel of God and profane the glory of God. But in the passage we have for us this morning, Paul turns his attention from insiders to outsiders and he flips his exhortation. He says to the outsiders, to the culture at large, be absolutely tolerant of them. Be tolerant of them. Now, if we were to look through these first two verses, we have enough to work on, friends, for weeks to come, don't we? And I think this is why Paul reminds them, as he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, it doesn't take a sophisticated hermeneutic for us to understand this text or a deep dive in the Greek behind the text. The message of this text is simple and clear and straightforward, isn't it? But it isn't easy. Especially when you start to apply each one of these statements to the different spheres of your life, the different relationships that you have, whether at home, at work, as you relate to the world at large. I'm going to read through these commands again slowly and think about your own life. Do these things demark the way you live with people around you? Remind them to be submissive, not just submitting, but submissive to rulers and authority. Remind them to be obedient. Remind them to be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. The New Living Translation I like there, it says, show true humility to all people. And we start to apply this to different areas of our life. It gets, it gets a little uncomfortable in here, doesn't it? Now, while the, the reminder of these two verses is for the outside or, the, church at, or the, the culture at large, let's not bypass what should be obvious. That we need to start paying attention to these reminders right here with those around us in this room. To so-called brothers and sisters in Christ that we love and are unified with in the spirit. How are we doing in our church? Friends, I'm meaning to give no offense to anyone personally here, but I have to say that we have some work to do, don't we? You look around this room and you walk out into the hallways, you hear the, the murmurings of gossip throughout the church. Someone does this, someone didn't do that. Can you believe they did this? Can you believe they, they took that away? Can you? Be- Not quite the good works in verses 1 and 2 happen throughout the church. And in fact, it's the reason why I understand why so many people are disillusioned and disenfranchised from the modern church. And I know pastors, fellow pastors, who were in full-time vocational ministry leave their ministry because just the opposite of verses 1 and 2 happen. They get nothing but evil spoken against them. There's no humility. There's no gentleness whether it's a congregation member or a pastor, I've heard the same story over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters in Christ speaking evil against one another, no gentleness and certainly no humility. Or think about the different sphere, your physical family. Think about your post-party comments as you ushered your crazy aunt and uncle out the door this last few weeks. What'd you say about them? What about your coworkers? What do you say about them? How do you act towards them? 
Now, I can't say much because all my coworkers are in this room. <laughs> Welcome back, Pastor Nick. Thank you. See, it's hard enough as we talk about people we know and people we love and care for, get along with in theory. But now think about what this passage means as we relate to the culture at large. The culture I described back earlier as a describing Crete. And I think the real kicker of this passage, of these, these verses, come at the very end of verse 2. The toward all people. Who are the people in Crete supposed to be kind and submissive and obedient and gentle with? Who are the all people for the Cretans? Well, look back in chapter 1, verse 12. Look back at chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their very own, his own people, Paul says. What does he say about his kinsmen, his fellow countrymen? Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Or look at chapter 3, verse 3, the passage we read just a bit ago. The culture is, the people of this culture all around us are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The all people of whom not an evil thing is to be said, the all people to whom we are to be ever so gentle with and do all kinds of good works towards, these are the people who are evil, lazy, liars, people who carry it away with stupid passions and the fads of this world. And if we understand the historical context a bit, we would know that the, the, the rulers and authorities that they're supposed to be submissive to, well, most likely those rulers and authorities at the time Paul wrote this are dipping Christians in hot oil. How are we to treat these people, all people, including those in governing authorities? Speak no evil of them. Be ready to do good works to them always. Be respectful, show true humility. How are you doing at these good works that Paul commends? How are you doing at treating people who are completely different than you? Are you being tolerant of those around you? Now, some of you may be on to thinking this, like, and I think it's right to say that the, the modern understanding of tolerance doesn't do justice to what Paul is saying here. You know, not modern tolerance means something along the lines of accepting all people's views as legitimate and relatively truthful. Now, God's view of tolerance certainly has a clear line of truth, doesn't it? Paul has some very hard and straightforward things to say about the world and rebellion against God. Verse 3, it is foolish. It is led astray. It is wrong. In fact, I think chapter 3, verse 3 is one of the best succinct ways of describing the world we live in today, isn't it? Just think about the media we consume. The op-ed pieces we read in the newspaper or online, the blogs we read, the TV commentary shows we watch, or the radio shows we listen to it. How much of those can be described as passing the day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another? Yes, the world has been led astray and we consume it. The world is disobedient to the revelation of God. And not just the world, the people, not just ideas, people are foolish, says Paul. How completely accurate is verse 3 of this world, of the non-Christian person? And that's why modern tolerance won't work. 
There's no place for truth. No place for right doctrine that leads to right and godly behavior. There's no place for telling people that they are living a lie that's leading them to hell in this world and the next. But friends, this passage really isn't about them. It's about us. So let's bring it back a bit closer to home. And dare I say that the old traditional view of tolerance, well, that doesn't quite cut it either. You know, the view that says, I may disagree with you completely, but I will defend you to the core to have your rights to believe whatever you want to believe. That isn't right either because it's far too passive. God wants us to have an act of tolerance, a gospel tolerance. One that just doesn't claim a belief in First Amendment rights. We need a tolerance that drives action. An action that's much more substantial to say than saying, you know, I think you're a real idiot, but I guess you can believe what you want to believe. That's not enough. It's a tolerance that drives me to speak of no evil to no one, no matter how much evil they speak against me. One that has a spirit of submissiveness, even though we know the ones we're submitting to may very well hate Christianity and want to see it driven underground as far as possible. Friends, are you ready for every good work to those who may completely disagree and oppose you? Are you ready to show all kinds of humility and gentleness to the very people you blame, I blame for the downfall of this culture, whether in your home, in this church, in your neighborhood, in this nation, in the world? Are you ready for these good works? Now again, this isn't some wimpy tolerance that we're afraid to call people out for their foolish lifestyle and afraid to stand on moral and propositional truths. Now, this is a tolerance that Christ showed as he commended us toward an active love of all people, including our enemies. Tolerance, kindness, love. However you want to label these first two verses, the command is crystal clear. There are our good works. As chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 state, our salvation should not only lead us to good works, Our salvation should lead us to be zealous for these good works. Is your salvation leading you to zealotry? Well, if you're like me, you at this point have a thousand justifications why you don't treat people this way. But Marty, I mean, you know, they, think, look at the way they act. Look what they say. Look what they do. They're, they're tearing us down. They're making us worse. They do this. They don't do that. I, there's no way I could. No, they deserve what they get. And fundamentally, we don't get it. And that's why Paul continues on to his next section about humility in verses 3 through 5. We need to go back to the motivation for these good works. And those come in verses 3, 4, and 5. See, if we don't grasp these verses and only grasp the first two verses, we will never have enough willpower. We'll never have enough reminders to treat all people in the way Paul commends in verses 1 through 2. As I said, the the key words in verses 1 through 2 I thought were the toward all people. I think the key word in verses 3, 4, and 5 are the for in verse 3 and the but or the two buts in verse 4. 
So look at, look, let's look at the, the four in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves in various passions and pleasures. Now, it may sound odd, but Paul wants us to look at the non-Christian world, the antagonistic world, the rebellious and foolish world. He wants us to look at that world sympathetically. Not with permissiveness, mind you, but sympathetically. Understanding that we were just like them. That we were once just as foolish, once just held as captive, once just as envious and malicious and Filled with hate as they were. Have you ever had a friend call you up and say, hey, Marty, um, well, they wouldn't say, hey, Marty. Have you ever had a friend call you up and say, hey, would you like to get together sometime? I'm really struggling with some things, and I could really use your opinion. You say, yeah, yeah, sure, let's set up time for coffee. But you get nervous about this meeting because you know you want to be helpful to your friend, but you don't know what they're struggling with, and what if they say something you don't understand? And then the meeting comes about, and they sit down with you, and they start to explain their struggles, and their struggles are the same struggles that you've had or are currently having. And you almost smile. Not because you're happy about the situation, but because you know you can relate and you can be a friend. You know you won't sit there and call them idiotic. You'll sympathize with them. You empathize with them. You don't hate them. You share, you talk. You plead with them to stop with their way of thinking and to stop their way of life. You extend offers to keep meeting together again and again and again and share with them the ideas you've had and the ways that maybe help with your progress. You cry with them when they fall flat in their face in their attempts. You take joy with them when even the smallest amount of progress is shown. You open their house up to them. You invite them open over. You invite them into your life. This is how we're to treat all people, Paul says, because they are us. We were once just like them. And how could we help but be sympathetic and compassionate? We look at the world and we see ourselves, Paul says. And let me just add one thing, that it's not just a past thing, friends. We were once that way, and I hope and pray that you are less likely to be like verse 3 as the years go on and on and on, that you look less like verse 3. But I know in my own life, I see how easily and forcefully the traits in verse 3 inch their way back into my life. I stop and see my past week where I, the foolish behavior, the foolish thoughts, the hatred, the envy comes out of my mind and my lips. How often do we see ourselves spending our days in envy and hatred at those around us and anyone different than us? That's why back up in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we need to dwell on sound, the sound doctrine of grace because it's the grace that trains us to renounce those ways. We need to keep in this training every day for the rest of our lives. We need to keep renouncing and re-renouncing these passions and pleasures of the flesh for the glory of God. See, we're just like them. And unfortunately, we are still like them at times. And unless we grasp that, we'll never be truly humble and truly tolerant. We'll simply be nice people to those who are generally like us. And here at home, here at this church, 
we'll have a church uni- unity that as long as everybody kind of looks the same and shares the same opinions on non-gospel issues, as long as they all coalesce, we'll welcome them. But that's not salt and light, is it? Even the pagans, Jesus says, know how to do that. That's easy. No, Paul says, we are to love those around us no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, and no matter what they do because we were just like them. And not tolerating them, well, that would be like not tolerating ourselves and not loving ourselves. Chris quoted Romans chapter 5 earlier. Romans chapter 5, God loved us while we were still his enemy. And he calls on us to do no less. But it's just not out of sympathy that we're called to be tolerant. It's out of true humility we're called to be tolerant. And that's what we have there in verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He washes us and regenerates us and renews us with the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? Did you hear that? Why is it that you're not foolish like the rest of the world? Why is it that you've been set apart, that you're here this morning and not like them? Not because of good works you've done, but because God has washed you and cleansed you and purified you because of his own mercy. The reason you're no different than the world has nothing to do with your moral uprightness. Nothing to do with your decision to walk the aisle a number of years ago. Nothing to do with the books you read or the news channel you watch. You weren't saved because God saw into the future and saw some great potential in you. The reason that you're not given to a completely foolish and disobedient life has all to do with God and nothing to do with you. That's what verses 4 and 5 are telling us. And that should humble us. Now, I think most of you know this. But the question would be, do you really believe it? Do we really believe this? A few weeks ago, uh, we were wa- my family was watching The Sound of Music. And we actually made it to the end of the movie. And a song near the end of the movie struck me. It's the scene where Maria and the captain first admit their love to one another in that gazebo. And Maria goes into that wonderful song. I'm not going to sing it. But here are the lyrics to something good. Just a few stanzas. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, I must have had a moment of truth. For here you are, standing there, loving me whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Maria's point, that somewhere along the line, she did something good enough to deserve that moment of blissful love with the captain. Nothing comes from nothing, she says. Now, of course, it sounds so enchanting and lovely when Julie Andrews sings it, doesn't it? But it's so debased. But I think it's what we believe. Sure, I'm not perfect, and I've done some boneheaded things in my life, but somewhere in the past, I've done enough good things that God shed, shared with me his loving kindness. I did enough that God rescued me, so that I've done it. At least I'm not like them, wasting their lives away. 
And when things go well for me, I think, well, God is just blessing me for the things I do. And when they stumble and fall flat in their face, well, of course, that's what they deserve, isn't it? And if we think this way, verses one and two will never be our response to the world. We'll look down on the world. We'll make them feel estranged and inferior. And as a result, we'll do exactly the opposite. We'll be angry and bitter, malicious, and speak all sorts of evil towards them and look for ways to be disobedient and not submissive to the government. And rare will good work go out from us to anybody other than maybe the innocent bystander at the soup kitchen. Now, what's the test if you really believe verses four and five? What's the test if you really believe it? Your actions. Are you living out verses one and two? With people you completely disagree with, with people you oppose, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's people of a different political party, maybe it's people in your family. How do you know if you believe verses four and five? Are you acting, are you doing verses one and two? So for the person who believes in the kind of modern view of tolerance, you may be very open to verses one and two and say, this is exactly how we should be treating each other. But rarely will you stand up for truth and rarely, if ever, will you be willing to call out the world as foolish and disobedient. And rare will you practice tolerance to the ones who you hate, those who are intolerant. Humility may be there, but only on your own terms. And that's not humility. For the traditionally tolerant person, you may be very moral in the areas of drinking and gambling and pro-life and pro-traditional marriage, all very great things as we know, but you will rarely practice an, an active tolerance and love towards those who you oppose or oppose you. And you certainly won't evangelize them. And your church... Everyone will look and be the same. If either of these describe you, if, then verses four and five must be absent for your th- from your theology. Humility will be far from you. And friends, I say this with a mirror right in front of me because I see myself in both of those descriptions. Here's the logic of what I've said and some implications of these few short passages. The ways of the world are indeed foolish and disobedient, and that is precisely why Christ died, to wash and purify you and me away from that former way of life. And so you will plead with the people in the world with all compassion and love to come out of their foolishness, to come out of their disobedience. And you yourself, you'll order your life with gentleness and kindness and humility so that those people may give you an ear to speak truth into their lives. But no matter how they respond to you, you will be willing to do every good work towards them because you are no better than them. That's the logic and the implications from a passage like this. And once you get this, humility will flow into a gospel action-oriented tolerance. A couple weeks ago, Nick said, he pressed upon us rightly to say, if we aren't in a state of spiritual humility, we won't recognize the tremendous gift we have in the baby in the manger at Christmas. Similarly, this morning, I would say, if we're not in a place of spiritual humility, we won't be exercising humility towards all people. We'll continue to speak evil. We'll continue to revile the world 
and rare were a good deed come from us to anybody outside our circles. What's the path to godliness, according to Paul? It's the grace of God. Paul says to Titus, teach grace because grace teaches. It trains us in humility so that we are ready for every good work for every single person. The godly living we're commended to do is in verses 1 through 2, and that's the godly living of gospel tolerance. And the pathway to that lifestyle, the mindset, the sound beliefs that we have to have in order for that practice to happen comes in verses 3, 4, and 5, and that's the humility of the grace of God so that no one may boast. This is applied theology, isn't it? It's the kind of passage you can come back to every single day or every week for 2016 for maybe even an inch of progress. But friends, this is worth doing, isn't it? If you're like me, verses 1 and 2 are not natural to you, and you'll struggle. But this is the high calling we have because we just like them, sinners in the hand of a God who loves us and wants to purify himself, a people devoted to good works. Now, I want to leave with you some practical advice this morning to take this, because in the end, we need to foster humility, don't we? And I can't really help you with verses 1 and 2. They're straightforward. We need to work at them. But the only way we can work at them, really, is if we change our mind about who we are and who God is. And those come in verses 4 and 5. So I just want to leave you some very practical examples or ways to work on your humility. And it's a tough one, isn't it? Hey, I'm, you know, my goal in 2016 is to be more humble than you. Like, that's, that's hard. So here's some practical examples I found in this really, really helpful book by a Christian historian named John Dixon. It's called Humilitas. He gives us ways towards humility. But let me just give you an example of how not to think of it. Last year during baseball season, my son and I were driving home from the game. And my son's very confident in his ways and, and how he does in games and things in life. I said, Malachi, how do you think you did today? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, how would you evaluate performance on the field? Was it very good? Was it good or was it not so good? He thought for a moment, cocked his head. He said, I think I did okay. It was, it was good. I'm surprised because he always thinks very highly of his performance. So I said, Malachi... Why didn't you say you did very good? Why did you say you only did good? And he said, well, Dad, you know, I knew if I said I did very good, you'd be mad at me. (laughs) That's not the kind of humility we're looking for here, okay? So here are a couple points I took, and you can write them down and reflect on them more later when we have some more time. Number one, we are shaped by what we love. If you love God, you're shaped by a graceful God, a merciful God. If you love yourself, that's not the path of humility. Number two, reflect on the lives of the humble. Reflect on the lives of the humble. I know this time of year people are excited about maybe reading the whole Bible in the year. and Maybe you can do that and that's great. But maybe something that's more tangible for you. And here's a way towards humility. Read all four Gospels this year. One each quarter. Read a Gospel every three months. And as you do so, you will be reflecting on the life of the most humble person ever in the world, Jesus Christ. You will be reflecting on him four times this year. Now, that's a pathway to humility. Number three, conduct thought 
experiments. Train yourself. Put yourself in positions where you say, okay, when I go to this family party and I know someone's going to say this, here's how I'm going to respond. Or when I'm at work and my boss says this, I, here's how I'm going to respond. Or when I watch the news and I see these people say these things and I normally get so bitter and angry, here's how I'm going to respond. Train yourself. Put yourself in those positions and train yourself. And that's similar to point number four. Point number four is humble yourself by putting yourselves in humble positions. There's lots of examples I can give, but for sake of time, I'll just give you one. Go volunteer to teach children or youth. There's a humble position. I mean, in of itself, it's a great thing to do to teach children about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's very humbling. First of all, five-year-olds will ask you questions you have no idea how to answer. Second of all, you will be stuck up in a room upstairs or somewhere in the back part of the building, and no one except those few parents will know you're doing it. It's a very humbling position. Put yourself in humble position where you don't need praise and glory for doing. My dear mother is a great example of this. She raised three boys. She taught public school in elementary for 35 years. And you know what my mom does in her retirement? Every Wednesday night, she teaches four and five-year-olds. I chuckle when I hear people say, Marty, you know, I would volunteer, but I did my time. I did that long ago. If anyone has a right to say that they did their time, it would be my mother. And what my mom does every Wednesday night is teach little four-year-olds about Jesus. No one knows except their Father in heaven. Put yourself in humble positions. Number five, invite criticism. Ask a good friend or two to say, help me. Where am I so self-absorbed? Help me. How can I be more humble? Challenge me. Invite criticism. Invite criticism in the things you do well. And number six, and this is a quote I got from C.S. Lewis, because he can say this and I can't. Lewis says, the path to humility is admitting that you aren't. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and that's a biggish step too. At least nothing whatsoever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means very well indeed you are. The first step is to humble yourself. Friends, there's no better place to humble yourself than dwelling on the cross. Dwelling on verses 4 and 5 as we read this this morning. And symbolically, we do this once a month and I can say there's no better place physically to be humble than at the table. There's no room for arrogance or boasting or pride at the foot of the cross. There's no room for any type of look at me. When we come to the table this morning, we come to the foot of the cross where The only person who didn't deserve anything against him took all the fullness of God's wrath and humbled himself completely for you and for you me. It reminds me of Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. The Pharisee standing in the temple. Thank God I'm not like everyone else in here. Thank God you made me so great. What's the tax collector doing in the back? beating his chest, not even looking up, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord. That's where humility starts, doesn't it? 
And while we don't have temples or altars these days, symbolically, when we come to the table, we come to the very place where God is. The very place where he broke his body and shed his blood for us. So if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and humbled yourself to confess your sins and plead with him, then you can come to the table. And I'd invite you to do so. If you're not sure where you are, or you know you haven't, it's okay. I ask you to refrain from that. Come pray with one of the pastors or elders, and we can talk further about this later. I ask all of us to humble ourselves as we approach this. You will be served the cup and the bread by the ushers. Nathan will be playing some music. Reflect upon the work of Christ on the cross for our sake. Reflect on the washing and regeneration of his spirit. Reflect on his work for you and for me to bring us all glory and honor, even though we deserve nothing. As the ushers come down and distribute, I ask that you hold your bread and your cup until everyone has it, and then we will institute the Lord's Supper.